You're listening to TIP. There's a lot of chatter about this in my industry because it's so mainstream that amongst colleagues, they almost have to say it's not possible to build themselves up and not feel bad about it. And I think that the ones that are doing so almost believe it is possible or they wouldn't be going, oh yeah, there's no way, there's no way. I know there's no way, so I rarely bring it up. On today's show, I chat with Grant Norwood again, and this time we talk about the different strategies of real estate syndications and how they compare to what Grant does with oil, why there is pressure on Exxon and other big oil companies from governments and activist investors, what the green path is and what impact it's going to have, and a bunch more. Grant is the CEO of Norwood Energy Corp and has successfully worked on projects in the Oklahoma Scoop and Stack Basins, active areas around Texas, as well as the Illinois Basin. Grant's specialty is recognizing opportunity hotspots in undiscovered areas of the country where they can operate significantly below what it would cost the oil giants, such as Exxon or Chevron. Grant couples his expertise with the desire to help everyday passive investors get involved in what is one of the most lucrative, and yet inaccessible industries in the world. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Grant Norwood. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back Grant Norwood. He joined me last time on the Millennial Investing Podcast. This time we bring him back to talk oil and how it compares to real estate. So Grant, welcome to the show. Hey, Robert. Thanks for having me back. For those who didn't hear our first episode together back on episode 62 of the Millennial Investing Podcast, give us a quick rundown on your background and how you got to where you are today. Okay. Yeah. So I'm from Texas. Always grew up around people in the business. After I got out of school, I met a few guys who introduced me to the Oklahoma Scoop and Stack Play, which is just two sub-basins of the larger Anadarko Basin. And for those of you that don't know, a basin is like a bowl of sedimentary rocks under the ground. And that's where we find hydrocarbons, aka oil and gas. So my first four years were spent out there dealing with landowners, trying to help them maximize the value of their assets that they wound up owning. Some of them knew they owned it. Some of them didn't know they owned it. People had been spread out through generations. And when someone severs the rights, they get passed around and people move. And it's a big task to locate them. So that's where I started in the business. From there, I started putting different assets together for bigger funds. And these funds, they bring in aggregators like me because it's not worth their time to put to buy up smaller interests. So as I'd aggregate them, people would take them off my hands and pay a premium for them. So I kind of learned the transactional side of the business and you have to know what you're doing and find value in order to capture that arbitrage. Through doing that, I actually befriended several operators. One had a very interesting play in the Illinois Basin. And we've teamed up for the last two and a half years now. And, you know, so now I'm kind of between the capital sourcing side, the leasing side, 
and the actual hands-on operations within our organization. Some people listening to the show are probably wondering, why are we talking about oil and gas on a real estate show? So I want to talk about how oil and gas and what you're doing is similar to real estate syndications and compare the two. Because I think a lot of people listening are probably pretty familiar with real estate syndications. So take us through the different strategies of real estate syndications and then compare that to what you do with oil. The friends I have, when you source capital and you do your own kind of syndications, you meet people that do the real estate as well. So what they've conveyed to me and what they've offered to me and what I participate with them in, it's usually three different strategies. So it's either a development play, which is unimproved land, kind of starting from square one. Maybe it needs to be repurposed. It's lacking permits, infrastructure. It's capital intensive. It's a long way to cash flow. So that's strategy number one. Strategy number two is going to be a value play. You're looking for something distressed, run down. It needs transformed. It needs an infusion of capital of some sort. You're discount shopping. So that's strategy number two. And then we move into a yield play. So a yield play is already cash flowing. And that cash flow there is kind of worth it to you to just kind of kick back and milk it. You're okay with the risks and you just want to sit back and milk the cow and hopefully it doesn't go dry and you get the return you're expecting. That is exactly what we do. Obviously, it's not the same in the sense we're building properties that we're going to lease out. But in our development place, you're moving into an area that has little to no infrastructure. You can't drill a well and have no market to sell the product to. So you're starting from square one there. Sometimes you have to involve more than just yourself because it's a completely different business to take the product to market. But we're kind of starting with nothing. And the reward is great enough that we're willing to get in there and put in place everything that needs to both produce the oil and then get it to market. And then also moving from strategy one to strategy two, the value plays, we do look for Instead of maybe distressed assets, it's more distressed operators that really need capital to just survive. We just went through a tremendous downturn. We saw the lowest oil price in history. I doubt we'll see it again, but it put so many people out of business that it was a great time for value plays. If you're looking to do that now, you're late to the party. But last year, that was the move. So you could go and Maybe the assets cash flow positive. That might be the only bargaining chip that they have to sell something to make their interest payments, just whatever have you. And you can pick this asset up. Maybe you infuse a little bit of capital. Maybe you just sit on it, kind of like you would in a yield play. But last year was perfect for that. Now, when you get to the yield play, there's in our business, a lot of times it's cash flowing. You do most of the time have to put some capital into it. That's one different thing from, I guess, real estate is maybe in some cases, you don't have to add any capital to it. That rarely happens in oil and gas. Obviously, we've got our operating costs and stuff like that, but there's a lot of routine maintenance and you inherit something and you have your way of doing it. So it does take a little bit of capital infusion, but for the most part, you're just buying it for what it's making. It's beating the market. So you're happy. It's got a lot of life left to it. So you're happy. But those are those three strategies. 
So we know how they're alike. And then if we're going to draw the line there and go, okay, where is it different? Well, oil is an ever diminishing return. So day one, that well's kicking out, let's call it 200 barrels a day. Now, if that's day one, maybe day 30, it's kicking out 250 because it's still cleaning up, you know, a lot of things down hole. They're real fresh. But from the time it hits that plateau, from then on, it's ever diminishing. And I would say really where the similarities end is while real estate, maybe you got in the wrong zip code and the neighborhood went down and what you could rent it for went down a little bit, but it's not going to be at the rate that oil diminishes. But the benefit to still being involved in oil is rate of return. So although you know, you're seeing a steady hyperbolic decline, 5% on top of the remaining 95% on top of the remaining 91 point, you know, whatever the fraction is percent, although you're experiencing that, your returns can be double digit percentage points each and every month. So you might wind up at the end of year one with anywhere between 100 and 400% return. Now, those are dramatic numbers, but it does happen. You have to be very calculated to experience that. It's regular for some companies. It's not regular for other companies. Some of them get lucky and hit one every now and then, and then some of them do it almost every time. So I think the main thing to know is just the rate at which your return goes down is different. But the reason we still do it is because it's a short cycle, high yield. So where if you're in real estate and you're looking at it over a generation, you're probably going to win. If you're looking at something in oil, you're planning for the same return, but in the next couple of years. So I guess if you've got that down, then like the development time, in my opinion, is faster. Now, if you go back to strategy one, like we were talking about, there's nothing there. Maybe they're comparable. It takes time to build roads, pipelines, in and out, permits, everything of that nature. But if there's a little bit there, you might, where if you're doing one of these big real estate syndications, let's call it kind of commercial residential, you're probably going to be in the development phase anywhere between two to four or five years, where this, you could be finished with your well in two to three months. So it's really just speeding up that value curve and your time value of money. And that's kind of where we win. Now, another thing we don't have to fall back on is the asset itself. So in the event you come up dry on a well, it's done. You lost. And real estate, you know, you've still got the dirt there. You've still got the asset. It's tangible. You can touch it. You can find value of some sort. So that's another thing where we have the disconnect. So it's like high return, semi-high reward versus good return. You've always got something to fall back on. Why is there pressure on Exxon and other big oil companies from governments and activist investors? What is the green path? On the green path, everyone's really pushing towards renewable energy. And that I think is a good strategy. I think that long term, it's going to hurt the, your everyday man because you're going to pay more for your power. You're going to pay more for all of your other commodities as well. 
Because when you try to replace oil, it goes into so much more than, than just energy that you're not really thinking about, okay, all the fibers in my clothes, they need petroleum. So everything from clothes to building materials to plastics, everything in our everyday lives gets more expensive. So when you make the companies like Exxon kind of make their big cuts, then what you're doing is you're taking the power out of the free market and you're putting it in the hands of these state-run companies in the Middle East and South America and a few other places. So you're giving them the control of the price. So what it's actually going to do is it's going to hurt your consumer. I'm not going to try to get political on whether or not climate change is real. But I will say that human flourishing is important. And until we find a replacement for plastics, glass, everyday household items, we don't have an alternative and would caution against people supporting that before you have that alternative. Because what you're going to do is take these companies that kind of keep prices from going haywire you're going to take their ability away to produce this commodity and it's going to hurt everything down the line as well. So I think that green energy is great. I think that we need it. I think that oil gets more expensive to produce after you get more and more of the low-hanging fruit. So an all-in energy strategy takes some of the load off of oil. Give an alternative because we need it for other things. I mean, that switch may never happen. Renewable energy still only makes up 3% of the energy mix. And you would have thought from the last 36 months to present, it would have made huge jumps with all the new capacity being brought online. But all it's really done is kept up with the increase in demand. And I would say that we're throwing just about everything we've got at it now. So until there's a viable solution, I would caution against it and, and maybe even flip the script a little bit and say, we do need it. What is the impact going to be? And how's it going to impact the industry? How does it impact you specifically with what you're doing? Really? It doesn't impact me at all. Like I said before the show, when oil was at 30 last year, we were still drilling. A lot of people need 45 to 55 per barrel just to break even. So it doesn't affect me personally at all. But I will say that there are a couple of million families, or they have less than higher education that live great lives that are employed directly by my industry. I think if the green energy industry can find a place for those people to work, it would be great. It really impacts the people that work for the public companies, us smaller operators. We can't compete with their salaries, pensions, benefits, because we just don't have that scale. So it's going to affect them because they're going to have to humble themselves and accept what we can offer, or hopefully green energy is going to have a place for them. And I think in some cases it does. So where I started out picking up leases, doing right-of-ways, like helping landowners, they call that a landman. They're going to need that to build these wind farms and these solar farms as well. So, I mean, I'm glad that there's going to be a replacement in the jobs market that's hopefully at least semi-equal because it's hard to tell somebody that, hey, what you do for a living, it hurts this or that. So you've got to find another way to support yourself. And as I said a second ago, not everyone that's making good money, supporting their families and living in the middle-class life 
has higher education. So it's going to put a hindrance on their lifestyle. Are you worried, just generally speaking, outside of just the green path, when we think of Tesla and Solar City and all these other popular green energy, solar energy type companies, the move to electric vehicles, you hear a lot of countries are even saying we want all of our vehicles to be electric by 2025 or whatever the case is. There's manufacturers that are going and saying, by this date, we're only going to have electric vehicles. Do these types of trends and things like that worry you? Or are you not so much concerned because you know oil and gas is in so many products? Even of those vehicles that are electric, you still need oil in the the rubber for the wheels and things like that. How do you think about this overall as a somebody involved in the industry as a business owner? I mean, to be honest, I would say that there's a lot of chatter about this in my industry because it's so mainstream that amongst colleagues, they almost have to say it's not possible to build themselves up and not feel bad about it. And I think that the ones that are doing so almost believe it is possible or they wouldn't be going, oh yeah, there's no way, there's no way. I know there's no way, so I rarely bring it up. And that's mainly because it goes into so many other products. You take big oil and you start flipping their boards over to where they're not funding new big projects and you cut out 25% of the world's supply and you take every light duty car and truck off the road and you dent demand 15%, there's still a deficit. The price of oil will still go up. It'll still get used. So, I mean, everything, if everyone drove a Tesla tomorrow, you'd see demand go down 15%. They keep pushing on these boards to cut out spending on new projects. You're going to see supply drop a lot more than you'll see demand drop. So I'm not worried about it in the slightest. One thing that concerns me and maybe a few other Texans is we had that crazy freeze in February and they're telling you unplug your electric car. So in the event, that's all you have to drive and you can't charge it. And we were all kind of stuck at home for about two weeks. There's things to be concerned with not having something that's reliable. I guess the main thing to take away from oil and gas and why we need it is the word reliable. Come hell or high water, you can use it. It will work in almost all conditions. And you can't say the same for the alternative. So I'm honestly not worried about it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, 
but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. Like stock prices, no one can accurately predict the prices of commodities. But if you had a crystal ball and you could see into the future, where do you think oil prices will end 2021? Why are industry experts expecting triple digit prices by the end of 2021? Well, right now, we are seeing our inventories drop anywhere between four to eight million barrels per week. We're going on eight weeks of that. So we're at a deficit now. Today, when we're recording this, we're two days after OPEC decided that we're going to increase production by 400,000 barrels each month until we reach 4 million barrels. And I think maybe that will keep the lid on it so we don't see $100 oil. My call for the end of 2021 is going to be somewhere between $65 and $80. I know that's a wide range. But there's so many factors that I really think it's there. Other than the fact if the experts are saying it, I like to be a contrarian and kind of go, okay, well, you know, if they're predicting that, maybe people will start spending more on development and hey, what's that going to do? It's going to put some more supply out there. So I really think that 65 to 80 range is where I'd place my money. What is really causing all the volatility with oil prices over the last few years and even more recently? I mean, it's always supply and demand. There's so much political risk. And it's like certain countries' oil goes to certain places. So if you have a bombing somewhere in the Middle East and they're supplying country X or country Y, now that oil's got to come from somewhere else. Maybe it's the United States. So you see that gap between Brent and WTI close for a little bit. It's really so many factors involved like you obviously the pandemic no one was traveling air travel was down air travel makes up a tremendous amount of demand but at the same time you had so many people using masks gloves more medicines a lot of precautions and that all takes oil there's no telling how much more oil would have dropped if disposables didn't go from three percent of the demand mix all the way up to nine percent like it's not one factor or another it's just the market as a whole what direction things are going, if we're having any tensions, 
between two countries, if there's any sanctions, you know, right now, if they were to lift the sanctions with Iran, you'd see oil probably drop down to, let's call it $50 a barrel, only because that's about 4 million barrels a day off the market. OPEC's going to slowly and gradually bring another 4 million barrels back. That's the entire deficit. And to me and some others, that $50 mark is a balanced market. We're off balance right now. Today, we've had a slight drop down to 67, where on Friday last week, we were at 73. So just that little news. Now watch, you're going to have one more week of inventory numbers where we drop inventory numbers. We're already below the five-year average for what we have in our petroleum reserve. One more week of 5 million barrel deficit, that little news, it'll get washed out and we'll be back above 70. Not knowing a lot about oil, I mean, I admit I'm not an expert by any means. My guess would be that your biggest concern would be Tesla and electric vehicles and things like that. You've talked about you're not really worried about that. So what is your biggest concern? What do you worry about in this industry? As far as like an alternative coming up and competing with us or just as a whole? It doesn't have to necessarily be an alternative, but it could be anything. When you look at your business, what stresses you out? What worries you when you think about the oil and gas model that you're using? What is a risk for you that you stress about? I mean, so we're not going to be dealing with shareholders saying, hey, we should move away from oil or anything like that. But the political environment could shift. Where we are, primarily in Texas or the Illinois Basin, everything's in our favor. But maybe a few elections later, it's not. And we have to deal with what they have to deal with in Colorado and New Mexico, where you have to be so far from any dwelling or structure that you might have 20,000 acres that you plan to drill 80 wells on. And they pass one rule and your 80 well inventory cuts down to 15. And you paid for it like you were going to be able to drill 80 locations. So I think for me, not worried about demand, not really worried about capital or anything like that. It's really just going to be political risk. If we do hit the price levels you think we'll see, or the triple digits that industry experts expect, what are the indirect effects of that on the listener's everyday life? Walk us through the two different scenarios. So if we hit your prices, Versus if we hit the experts' prices, how does that impact listeners' everyday life? I mean, I hope I'm right because, you know, in some people's opinion, we are very much recovering from COVID. You look at the price of homes, you look at the stock market, it doesn't seem like it's so much, but there's a lot of people that are recovering and the price of goods, transporting those goods all the way down the value chain. Who wants to recover when the cost of everything is inflated? I would hate for it to go to triple digits for one transportation. If you don't have your Tesla, you know, obviously you're going to be paying in Texas $4 at the pump where you are maybe five, five fifty. I don't think anybody likes that. And maybe you're a high earner and it doesn't really affect you, but you know, most of the people around you, it does. So I'm really hoping that we don't hit triple digits from an operational standpoint. We do just fine. You know, we make great profits anywhere between 40 and $60 a barrel. And it keeps a lot of the riprap out of the industry. 
there's like a feeding frenzy. It's kind of crazy. People lose their minds when you have hundred dollar oil. You have a lot of people that think this is easy, uh, that there's not a ton of risk to consider that get in and really break their pick at hundred dollar oil. You'd think they'd do that at lower price because there's not as much take home when you find it, but there's just such a desire to drill that a lot of mistakes get made at hundred dollar oil. The competition for services regarding the operations, there's a lot of people vying for them. So for me, I'd much rather have a $60 environment. I can get my wells drilled in a timely manner. We make great money off our wells. Everything just hums. Prices at the pump are good. Prices of all goods, because they all are hauled by truck, rail, it doesn't matter. The price of everything is lower. And that's good for everybody. I'm not one of these guys that just wants to pad their pocket at the expense of everyone else. So definitely don't want to see triple digits. I mentioned that I'm not an expert by any means, but I know that you drill different than the conventional way. You use horizontal drilling. Explain to us what horizontal drilling is and how it differs from conventional drilling processes. You want to think of beneath the surface as like a layer cake. You're going through these different layers of sediments. You've got dolomites, you've got limestones, you've got shales, you've got sands. So as you go through them, conventional drilling, they are looking for sands, limes, dolomites, and things with a high permeability. That's the ability for things to flow through it. So take a bottle of water, pour it on the beach. It's going to soak up and dry fast. That's high permeability. Pour it on the concrete or on your sidewalk, just anywhere solid, and it's going to sit there. So most of the time, conventional drilling, you're going into something like I made the reference to on the beach. It's soft, it's permeable, it flows really easily. So you only really have to drill vertically into it. Sometimes you use different stimulation measures, but nothing too dramatic. With what we do, our formations are tight like concrete. So we'll drill down to them. We'll kick off. A directional service comes in and takes over and keeps our well bore within a formation as they drill horizontally. So we're drilling in this tight formation. We do frack. That's the big bad word we'll get into in a second. But we do frack. So we drill horizontally through it and then we frack the well. So fracking, you're taking sand. You take the chemical in it, it's what you use in your laundry detergent. You still wear those clothes. It's not going to hurt you. And we take water. So what that does is these hydraulic pumps, there's no dynamite or anything like that. These hydraulic pump the sand out into this formation. It's like a very thick oil saturated sponge that needs to be broken up. Well, it breaks under this pressure and it frees the hydrocarbons. So it's not dangerous or anything. It's unconventional. It's kind of what people refer to it as. And it's just because it's, I wouldn't say it's new, but it's, it hasn't been mainstream for a very long time. I mean, we're probably going on about 16, 17 years where the whole industry as a whole is more focused on unconventional horizontal drilling more so than they are conventional drilling, at least here in the lower 48. It's different because they don't have to get that desperate in the Middle East. You know, they have it very good. They don't have to drill as deep. There's plenty of oil and they've got a lot of inventory. But here in the States, we have to get a little bit more creative. But once you establish your cookie cutter pattern with good economics, the good thing about the way I do it is it works over and over and over again. 
almost to the point of about a 95% success rate. And that's comparing to a 60% success rate when you talk about a conventional well. The geologist does the best job he can. We have seismic, we have all kinds of different imaging and all that. But at the end of the day, you can't help where the dinosaurs laid down and died. But when you're doing these unconventional horizontal measures, you're going into things that are like blanket formations that cover large stratigraphical areas. So your risk of loss is much lower. What is the risk reward of horizontal drilling versus conventional drilling? How does this impact the production and lifespan? We get in there and we frack, right? So we're creating that permeability that's missing. So what does that mean? It's like shaking up a soda can and poking a hole into it. It's all going to shoot out fast. Now, when you've got that natural permeability and it's a decent reservoir, it's going to keep going and keep going. Does it have that umph in the beginning? No, not as much, but it's steady for a long time. So you go into a good conventional well, you're hoping to see your funds back in 24 months. And then over the next 15 years, in most people's book, they're looking for a four to six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 X. It really just depends on their strategy, what they got the acreage for, if it's part of a bigger development. But when you're going horizontal, you want to speed that value up. Your returns that you're aiming for are the same but you're going to get it all in a short period of time. You're still going to have returns. You're still going to have a well. It's still going to be flowing for the same period of time, but you're going to have that steep drop off in your first several years. And then the idea is you drill the well, you get your capital back several times. You've still got a well sending you money, but now you can go drill two new ones with the house's money. So that's the two strategies. One is long and steady. One is much quicker, but it dies out faster. In a real estate syndication, we have to vet the sponsor, meaning the person putting together the deal as well as the deal itself. How does someone who is interested in investing in oil go about this? Comparing this to real estate, instead of a syndicator, how does the investor find the right oil driller? And instead of the property, how does the investor find the right well? So really, if you get with the right company, they're not going to put you in the wrong well. So how do you find the right company? I mean, I would say consult a consultant, speak with one. As soon as you put the word out or get on any of these forums or reach out to companies, they're going to be responsive. They'll let you know what, what their plans are, what they have coming. I would get a third party to give you an opinion on a project. So many things look flashy. And if you don't have any experience in that area or their experience is limited, or if they think that everything they do is great, but it may or may not be. I mean, I would consult an expert, honestly, because you can make a tremendous amount of money in this business, or you can make a few bad decisions and lose a tremendous amount of money in this business. You just want to mitigate your risks. So Obviously, there's the need to check the person out. If they're in Texas, it's very easy to get records of what they've done, what their wells are like, and compare their pro formas to their actual results. One place you can go to is the Railroad Commission. If you've never been on it, playing with that site for about an hour, you could probably learn to navigate it pretty well. 
Oklahoma, you have the Oklahoma Corporation Commission. Most states have some form of it. I'd say that outside of Texas and Oklahoma, you're going to wind up having delayed data in other places. It's not as up to speed. So you might be able to pull everything as recent as 2018 and let's say Kansas, just for an example. So if their pro forma is showing you X and you're wanting to go, okay, well, let's see how many times they've done this successfully. You're working with 2018 before. Hopefully their luck has been that consistent. Maybe in 19 and 20, they did what they're showing you. So it's a little bit harder to verify. And a third party can reasonably tell you if they're overestimating. I mean, if you add my LinkedIn and the people I'm connected to, you'll probably see reservoir engineers, some kind of geologist, and you'll find places to consult. And you'd be surprised at how open people would be to helping you. And if you're considering a $100,000 investment, what is it to pay a guy $500 to look at something for a couple of hours and give you some good feedback? And then you can take that feedback to the company, see what their response is, if it's negative from the consultant, and base your decision on that. And I do think it's worth it to whoever might be listening or considering this, just because like I ran through the returns. I know us millennials, we've had a good run in the market. We've got cryptos, we've got all these things, but money historically doesn't work like that. If you're beating the market, which some people consider that anywhere between 6 8% a year. You're doing phenomenal. And if you can get in the right oil deal and you can do twice that each and every month, even if it only lasts for two or three years, I mean, you've done what no one else has been able to do and it's very lucrative. So you don't want to miss out on those opportunities. And it's worth the little bit of research to make sure you get with the right company. One concern that I personally have with oil is the potential involvement of governments. And I guess you could define that as political risk, which is what you said is probably one of the biggest things that that stresses you out. Now, I suppose we could see this in any industry, even in the most popular industry right now, which I'd argue is tech. But how does government involvement in oil production affect the success and future development of domestic oil production? How does it affect the price of energy and basic materials? It's the transportation of those materials. It's the fabrication of those materials. Everything along the way is affected. I mean, if it costs the guy more to get to work, it costs him more to run his chainsaw or his lumber yard or whatever, it's going to affect the price of that lumber. They fabricate that steel, the price of coal. Whenever you're making steel, it goes up. They've got to transport it, whether it's by ship, rail, or truck. I mean, when it costs more for transportation and we're only considering everybody driving a Tesla car, maybe that new truck, but we're not considering 18 wheelers. We're not considering ships. We're not considering planes. We're not considering anything outside of light duty vehicles. Just all along the way, it runs your cost up. So just your shipping. So the government affecting it, I really have not seen, even in the worst of political climates, like anyone, once a well is established, disturbing it. So you might experience some difficulties doing new developments, but once the well is there, you're fine. So the worst thing that somebody like you, if you were considering it, could fear is, hey, I'm making great returns. This is awesome. I want to keep going. I want to go pile more into it. 
and the opportunity goes away to get more of it. So do more drilling, expand your operation. You could get cut off on that, but your investment, so long as it's done with, is secure. They're not going to say, hey, you need to shut that well off, shut that well in. We need you to get rid of it. They might say, hey, you can't do any more. And if it's a long-term project, I would make sure that if for whatever reason, before they finish, they can't complete it, that they're not going to gouge you for syndication costs when they have to return your funds. That's one thing to consider. So if you know, New Mexico is a great place to drill. They've had some hiccups with permitting and stuff. If somebody puts everything in place, you participate with them and, hey, they get told, no, nope, can't do it. Make sure that what portion of this is going towards syndication costs in the event that you can't come through and, and complete the development. That's really your only political risk is not getting to do more. In California, there's tons of wells. I wouldn't want to try to drill one now but I'd love to own the ones that are already there. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. That's Airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. To keep comparing real estate to these oil deals that you do, 
I want to talk about taxes. And I know neither of us are CPAs or tax professionals, but just from a high level, tax benefits are one of the main reasons that people like real estate. It's not the only one, but it's very commonly one of the very first reasons that people mention. So what tax benefits and incentives are available when someone is investing in an oil deal like what you do? How is it similar and how is it different from real estate? So if you drill a brand new well, you have tangible costs and intangible costs. So the tangibles are going to be the surface equipment, the things you can pull out of the hole and that can all be salvaged. The intangible costs, that's the man hours, that's that's going to be your rentals of the equipment, basically your cost to lease the surface, build the roads, all the things you can't get any value for long after the well's plugged, they let you write off 100% of that in the first year against all active, ordinary earned income. And the stuff you can touch, the tangible, you either depreciate that over seven years and then you're 100% written off, or as long as the 2017 tax code's in place, you can accelerate that depreciation the first year. So Robert, for example, let's say you make a half a million dollars this year. You make a $100,000 investment into a drilling venture. Your taxable income is now $400,000. So you basically wadded up, gave it to charity, and you're ready to start receiving returns. Now on the income it generates, you ta- 15% of that is tax-free cash, and that's for depletion allowance. Now you do have these big time CPAs, and they will try to get more than the 15% depletion allowance. And they can, in some cases, if they can build the case and justify it, they can get 60% of it in that first year. But the problem is you forego that 15% every year following. So for me, in case this winds up being a 30, 40, 50 year well, I would just stick with that 15% depletion allowance year after year on the income that the well itself generates. So you're kind of getting to burn the candle at both ends. So you write off what you spend to get into the project, and then you're writing off a good portion of what the project generates you. Whenever you're looking at these pro formas, some of them calculate your tax savings, but it's really hard to do that because I don't know what your income situation is. So I don't know what tax bracket, I don't know what state you're in, what you're doing on state versus federal. Like, There's a few things I don't know, so I don't get into it. All I know is that I can tell you where you save, and then you can kind of figure in, okay, well, you know, if I'm paying 30% this year, then that lowers my basis in this investment by 30%. That compounds my return by 30%. And there's a lot of people that just do it to not have to write as big a check to Uncle Sam. I don't do it for that. I think that that's a little bit reckless. But it does help. It is a benefit. If I asked a hundred different guests the same next question, I'd probably get at least 75 different answers if I had to guess. And that's because there's a lot of variability in what people believe is right for portfolio allocation and diversification. And it varies from person to person. But in general, what do you see as the right percentage of someone's portfolio to allocate towards investments in oil? Like you said, everyone's got a different opinion. It really depends on the person and kind of understanding. Do you have like 80% of your portfolio in safe investments and 20% of your portfolio in risky investments? Or are you younger and it's 50-50? I'm not sure. But of your risk portfolio, 
I'm going to claim between 20 and 50%. You might be conservative and only want to dip your toe in in the beginning. I like to think that you should give it the right company so you can make it a little bit more worthwhile. Because once or if this meme craze and everything else goes away, I mean, and you're just exposed to equities, the turbulence that you can experience, and if you're not an experienced trader, you can get beat up real quick in that, just like anything else. But unless you just get into a project and completely stub your toe and take a bath on it, you don't have any other options that are going to return at this rate as fast and as long. So if you're doing the 80-20 strategy and that 20% is risk, then I guess it works out to somewhere around 10% of your portfolio. But a large portion of what you have in the riskier investments. As we get towards the end of the show, I like to ask the guests three questions that create an action plan for listeners of this episode for when they're done with this show. The first question gives listeners something to implement in their life. The second question gives them a resource to go learn from. And the third one gives them a specific action item to take right now. So the first question is, which habit or principle do you follow in your life that has had a big impact on your success that not enough people do, but should? For me, it's triangulating opinions. So you get a second opinion, you get a third opinion, and then you find out where they meet. I know I made reference to this in the last show, but I honestly don't believe I'd be where I am today without it. So yeah, triangulating opinions is going to be the one I stand on. What has been the most influential book in your life? It doesn't necessarily have to be your favorite book, because I think there could be a difference between what's been influential and what's your favorite, but more so, what has just had the most impact on you? Hopefully, you'll allow me to pick two, but... Like I said in the last show, Principles by Ray Dalio, there's few things that you can read that will share the wealth of experience and successful experience as that book. He's learned a lot of lessons for people. And if you'll kind of read it and listen to him, I think you'll do well. Now, a more recent book, I can't say it's influenced my whole life because it's not that old. But A Moral Case for Fossil Fuels really puts a different spin on things. I struggle with Hey, I went down this rabbit hole of, are we destroying the planet? Is it that bad? And why would we do so if it's so bad? And then you read that book and it's a different philosophical light on it's great for humans to flourish. We shouldn't feel bad about that. And then also there's so many other things that contribute to the pollution that everyone thinks is exclusively to blame on this industry. So yeah. Principles and a moral case for fossil fuels. For those who, if you're just listening to the audio version, you can't tell that I took the principles book off the shelf behind me, but I held it up so that Grant and I could see principles is one of my favorite books as well. I have three books on the bookshelf behind me. Principles is one of them. I hadn't heard of the second one, but it sounds interesting. So I'll have to dive in. Yeah. So it's a great book. It's written by Alex Epstein. He's appeared before Congress a lot here recently, just kind of posing cases for the industry and just recommend them to everybody. It just shame. once you listen to him, you listen or you get on his YouTube, he'll debate these different professors that are all about the new green push and all that stuff. 
they really don't have anything for him because they can't back anything up with data, whereas he can. And some of it's comical and you feel bad for the other side. But I mean, not to get into political things, but if you struggle with, should I do this based on a moral perspective, then give that book a shot. And the third part of the action plan is when this episode's over, before the listener quickly jumps to the next podcast queued up in their podcast player, what is one action they should take after listening to this episode that can help them improve their life, career, or business? So I guess for life, your loved ones are everything. Keep them close to you. Always make time for them. I know if you're a business person and you're as busy as I am, sometimes that's hard to do. But you never want to lose that closeness with those people because in the event this all goes away, those are the ones you're you're going to fall back to. And business, always be a good listener. Never stop a man mid-sentence or mid-thought. You might get whatever answer you would have never heard if you just let him finish. Hopefully, if you're lucky, he goes on a rant and really shows some cards that you can use in the future. Who knows? But so many people will really tell you a lot about what's going on if you just let them finish. Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guest actually ask me a question. So Grant, what question do you have for me? Well, I guess, Robert, so you heard me on the last episode. You kind of let me go on about the development value yield, how it compares, how it contrasts. I know you're big into real estate and stuff like that. But do you see this as worthwhile personally? So yeah, I do think so. The hardest thing for me, whether it's oil like we've been talking about, which I think you've done a great job in this episode and the previous episode explaining, but whether it's oil, whether it's stocks, whether it's crypto, whether it's real estate or even some private equity you know, through crowdfunding that you could invest in, one of the hardest parts about investing for me at least is when I have a dollar, let's just say I have $1 of these five or six buckets, what is the best bucket to put that dollar in? Because you can't just say it's a good investment. You know, Finding good investments is relatively easy, but finding the best investment of all of your options is very hard. So just because you find a good investment doesn't mean that it's great overall because you could have massive opportunity costs. right? Let's just say you invest in one thing that has a 10% or 15% return. That sounds amazing. But what if you pass up on an opportunity that has 25% returns or higher? So it's hard to decide what to allocate that dollar to. And so for me, I think you've done a great job explaining it. One of the not issues, but one of the problems that I have personally with it is Warren Buffett has this idea of only investing in things that you really understand. And I don't think I'm personally in that space where I know enough about it that I personally would be comfortable investing in it. But there are people that I've talked to from the show that work in similar industries or they're engineers or whatever the case is, and they know this stuff well and they love it. And so for me, like I'm pretty into, let's just say, fitness or motocross. I know a lot about those industries, but there are some people who've never even seen a dirt bike in person. It wouldn't make sense for them to invest in a company that has anything to do with dirt bikes. I think there's people that know a lot about it and it's within their circle of competence and it's right for them. For me, I would need to do a little bit more research on actually investing in it before I knew about it. And that it's the same for stocks. I've never owned Exxon. I've never owned any sort of oil or gas drillers. I've never owned any miners. 
I've never owned any biotech or anything like that because these types of companies, they're just outside of my circle of competence. And so I really think it is a good investment opportunity. I like what you've talked about. You've done a good job explaining it. I just need to get it within my circle of competence before I actually put any money in it. And I'd need to know, for me personally, that I can confidently say, this is the best place for my dollar and my opportunity costs in other places aren't as high as they could be if I invested elsewhere. So that would be my answer to that question. Cool. No, I like that. There's so many people that aren't that prudent where they stick to those principles and they'll stray, they'll try just about anything. And as much of a blue chip as you may or may not consider Exxon for you to not own any of it. I mean, that's principles there. The only way I own it is through the S&P 500 or any index that has it. But yeah, other than that, I'm pretty strict with my principles and my investments. Now, let me add one caveat, and that is I might put a little bit of money into something like this. Like I believe in Bitcoin personally. If we were to draw a circle to actually represent my circle of competency, I would say it's like on the edge. Like wherever that circle ends, it's very close to the edge. Like I don't know a lot about it at all. It's not in the middle of my circle of competency, but it's enough where I say, okay, I'll put a little bit of money into it. That way, if I'm wrong or I didn't understand something right and I lose it, it's okay. That's kind of how I feel about like something like this with oil is I would probably be okay with putting a little bit of money into it without knowing as much as I would for some of my other investments. But if I was going to put in significant capital, it would really need to be well into my circle of competency. And so yeah, I mean, you're right. I am very principled and I'm very strict and I'm hoping it'll lead to success. Yeah, no, I think that'll carry you far. I mean, sticking your guns is something that few people do. And like you said about your Bitcoin strategy, like I'll put a little bit, I'll watch it, I'll learn as I go. I mean, I was following your Instagram and did the same thing you did. So that's why I got I had some too, because I was like, no, I was like, okay, this makes sense. I'll do it with them. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where how much time do you have to learn this all before making a decision? Some people have a ton, some people don't have very much at all. And maybe coming up with a digestible amount that you're in a sense, you're not taking a flyer in the sense that I'm taking the flyer. You're taking the flyer on me and taking that flyer with a digestible amount that, hey, if it all goes south and you don't see anything, you're not going to hang. Even $1 you know, is never anything you want to lose. But maybe that is right for you and most others is I'm going to start here. If it's anything like it's supposed to be, then maybe there's $2 next time. Who knows? But along the way, and I'm sure you heard this from some of the guys that got in on the last show, the amount of communication about what happens out in the field is weekly. And I mean, somebody that doesn't know anything about oil will probably feel like they can drill their own well by the time if they actually read everything I send out as far as updates. So no one tells me it's too much. They might be thinking that, but I haven't heard that yet. But I give them the play-by-play each and every week. Sometimes I get things done faster than I expect. More often than not, it takes a little bit longer than I'd like it to. But you know each and every step what I'm doing. And if you've got that little token of experimentation in there and you're following it every week, you'll know what's going on, what we're capable of, or you'll go, huh, right? You got two deals. I actually think that one's better. You're going to see value in it that I don't see. You know, otherwise we drive the same car and live in the same house. Once you kind of know a little bit about it, you'll see more value in one deal over the other. And I think with 
what I give my people each week, they've got that ability to discern between one deal or another. You mentioned something very briefly at the beginning of that response that I think is important. And you mentioned that people are betting on you. If you don't know a ton about oil, you're more betting on you than you are the business. And I really like that idea because you hear a lot of venture capitalists and a lot of private equity companies that say they're betting on the jockey, not the horse. You've heard people say, I don't care what this guy's building, not necessarily you, but just somebody in general. I don't care what he's building. I'm going to invest in this guy because I believe in him. And so that's another kind of piece as to how, if I was going to consider an investment in oil, there's probably zero chance that I would do it with anybody but you because I don't know them. I don't have a relationship with them. I don't know anything about them. And I don't really know the industry that well. I don't want to go into researching and them and do their backgrounds and all that. But you, you and I already have a bit of a relationship. I know your reputation that you have. I know those types of things. I would feel a little bit more comfortable going into something that I don't know a ton about with somebody that I know is a good operator, that I could bet on that jockey. And so that's like a little bit different than the stock market where you can't really do that per se. You're betting on a company. I mean, you could bet on the management team, but overall, it's a little bit of a different dynamic. And so that is something that I would consider if I was going to go into the oil space. But Grant, where can the audience go to connect with you and find you on the internet, your social media, your website? Where's the best place to connect with you? The website's very easy. Instagram's very easy. I'm trying to... You're not going to find a lot of Instagrams where they focus on oil and gas. So I'm really trying to develop that and put my millennial twist to it and kind of keep up with the other Instagrammers in a sense for my industry in specific. So it's not just going to be like, hey, this is mine. This is what you should do. I try to put a lot of informational stuff out there so you can learn along the way. Because just like what you were saying about you're betting on me, I might just be your stepping stone. I'm the guy you trust and I'm the guy that delivered for you that first time. But through doing a deal with me, you learn enough about the business that you found somebody better than me because you know what a good deal or a bad deal is. But to not get off subject, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, my website, I have a YouTube page. Those are the best ways to reach me. I'll be sure to put a link to all of Grant's resources and anything else that we talked about in the show in the show notes below for anybody that's interested. Grant, thanks for joining me again. I appreciate it, Robert. Thank you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.